I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns. The book of Revelation is, it's incredible. It has captured the imagination of Christians for centuries and especially in the last two centuries, it has been on the forefront of many American Christians' imagination. In fact, there are some who will tell you that you can't understand the Bible unless you understand the book of Revelation. Now, I think they're wrong, but I understand why they're so excited. It's because the book of Revelation is phenomenal and filled with pictures that make Christianity jump off the page. But I will not tell you that you cannot understand the Bible unless you understand Revelation. It's the other way around. You cannot understand Revelation unless you understand the Bible. The first key to knowing what John is talking about is seeing that over two-thirds, if not more, of the book of Revelation is directly referring to some part of the Old Testament. If it's not a quote, it's an illusion. He is playing with all of the images of the entire Bible and pulling them together. And in the end, what he's saying is it's about Jesus. It's always, always, always about Jesus. And that's where the other great mistake people read in understanding the book of Revelation is thinking that it's not really about Jesus at all. It's about the end of the world. Hmm? And so if you've heard anything from other preachers and pastors, especially outside of the Lutheran tradition, about this book, you've heard that it's something like a roadmap for the end of the world. The most famous of these teachers in recent years is a guy named Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth. Although if you've heard of the Left Behind series, Tim LaHaye, but it's not just those guys. It's really anyone who's not a Catholic, a Lutheran, or like an old school, which means now liberal, Methodist, or Episcopalian, anyone who's not those things is going to think that what's going on in Revelation is what's going on in the news right now and has more to do with the nation state of Israel and whether or not a temple gets rebuilt there than it has anything to do with, well, what Jesus was doing coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Now, let me say one more thing about that, though. While I will insist to you that the book of Revelation is not about the end of the world, it does have the end of the world in it multiple times, actually. The world ends like three times. And I will say the book of Revelation is absolutely about our times right now. Because that is always the truth about this book. In every era since John wrote it, the book of Revelation has been about what is going on on the planet at that time as a result of the triumph of Christ over death, of his creation of the New Testament church in his blood, and of the enemy's assault, bound as he is, strong man tied up in change, nonetheless striving to deceive the nations and destroy the church in a futile attempt, a last gasp to stop being what cast down from heaven as Jesus, in fact, saw him have done and did to him 
when he died on the cross. So again, Revelation is about right now, but that's because it's always about right now. In the first century, when John wrote it to seven congregations and sent it as a letter to those seven congregations, and he said, I'm writing to you about what's going to happen to you, he meant it. He didn't mean I'm writing to you about something that won't make any sense, but in 2,000 years, some other people on TV will figure it out. He meant that they would understand what was going on. And then every generation since then, it has been possible, not that they always did it, but it has been possible for them to know that this was also about their time. Now, again, the trick is that many times they thought we're in the end times. This is it finally. So in the 300s, in the 400s, when Rome was collapsing, the Christians said, it's the end. Huh? And in the Middle Ages, when things were going bad with the Turk across, across the, you know, in the crusade areas, this is the end. And when Luther is fighting against well, the Babylonian captivity of the church, the Roman Catholic teaching of you got to buy your salvation, he said, this is the end. It can't possibly get worse. It looks pretty bad out there right now, right? This is the end. Could it ever get worse than this? If there's a lesson I think we should learn is that, you know, it, it kind of goes in a circle. Things go up, things go down. Nations rise, nations fall. And what Revelation does do, though, is to give you some insight into how, as a Christian, not to be deceived by this. And also, how, as a Christian, to have great hope in the certainty of your king being in charge of the entire thing. Now, we're not going to be able to take us all the way through the whole book and show you that today. But I can give you a couple of basic ideas, and then we're going to look carefully at the text that we just heard read, which will take almost all the themes in the book and shove them into one place, which is at the heart of you know, Jesus' triumph again. Okay, but so first, one of the reasons people have so much trouble creating a timeline for the end of the world out of Revelation so that Jesus has to come back and then go away and then come back and then disappear and then come back and set up a temple and on and on and on is because there are several times that the end of the world is depicted in the book of Revelation. And each of those times is at the end of a series of seven things that takes place. There are three very evident series of sevens in the book of Revelation. So the structure is like we go through it in seven things. And then we start over. We go through it in seven things, and then we start over, and then we do it one more time, and we start over. Although, I half told the truth there. There's actually four sevens, because before you get into the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of wrath, you first have the seven letters to the seven churches, the lampstands and stars that Jesus holds in his hand that he's writing to so that they will understand that nothing is outside of his power and his control now that he has risen from the dead and descended to the right hand of God and taken all power and authority into himself. Uh, so the book begins with John trapped on the island of Patmos. He's in exile. It's a prison. He's in prison and he has this vision of Jesus. And we're not going to be able to look at that, I don't think, this morning. But it's similar to what he looks like when he's on the white horse. It's not sort of, hey, I'm your buddy, Jesus. It's this guy is scary as, well, hell, honestly, only more. Scary is heaven. And if you think heaven's not scary, you haven't thought about it enough or read anything about it. The armies of heaven are fiery cherubim. They come down and they slaughter men in a night. Huh? 
And this is, this is the guy who's in charge of all of that. Again, flames of fire in his eyes, his skin glowing like burnished bronze. Yeah? The guy's incredible looking. He speaks and he's got a voice that sounds like the rushing of many waters. I don't know how many of you have been beside a beach when there's a lot of waves, not, not little waves like Florida, right? But like, like real waves are crashing down, right? Or uh, the one time I was at Niagara Falls, you kind of, you walk toward the falls and man, is that loud? It's just loud. And you try to talk to someone like, da, 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 da. what, what? And you got to shout over the sound. Okay. So when Jesus starts talking in the opening of the book, that's what he sounds like. He's and this makes John fall down like one dead. He can barely stand to lift his eyes up. He doesn't even know what to do. And of course, Jesus says what Jesus says, fear not, you know, get up. I got you here. But by the way, I'm going to show you some stuff. And all the things he's going to see are going to be similar to, or at least coming out of something like what Ezekiel sees when he sees God high and lifted up on his throne with the wheels within wheels and the angels and the rainbows on fire and all that kind of stuff. And then Isaiah has the same thing as the the glory of the Lord fills the temple with smoke and he's shown all of these images of the future. John's going to take those ideas. He's going to take Zechariah. He's going to take Joel. He's going to take Uh, Moses, he's going to take the whole Old Testament and see it as a big picture of how it's been completed in Jesus. Again, as I said a moment ago, of how it's done, how Jesus is in charge, how the world doesn't believe that. Remember, there's a wide path that leads to destruction. You're on the narrow path. You're no longer the wicked. Are you sinful and unclean by nature? Do you need Jesus to forgive you? Yes, but you're different from the wicked unbeliever who's a hypocrite, only and does not believe at all that world right that world rejecting jesus and his church set themselves against god and will strive to destroy who jesus is as a story for the rest of history and the way that that happens is kind of again detailed in these various images but it's always about them trying to cast off the authority of God and God sending curses upon them to shove them back into their place. So the seven seals that the lamb who has triumphed and ascended to the throne of God opens from the scroll and shows in in the revelation of what is to come, it's only what has come before, which is these four horsemen of the apocalypse. And if you're tracking, we're somewhere around chapter five and six at this point. But the four horsemen of the apocalypse, people like like to kind of imagine them and and think of them because I, I don't know why that catches people's imagination. I mean, it gets into like X-Men and Marvel comics and, comics and stuff. But anyway, in the book, all that they are is a description of the fall. They're a description of what's been going on since Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden. War, famine, disease, and death. That's it. And there they are going to and fro across the earth, just like Zechariah saw, same image. To and fro across the earth, doing God's bidding, hemming in the world so the world can't get too out of control. So that, and here's the promise again, so that the church of Jesus Christ may walk through this veil of tears untouched by their wrath, right? Not the horsemen, but the unbelievers who want to destroy our faith, who want to take away what we believe from us. 
All right, so I'm not going to go through all of the seven seals, but again, the Lamb opens these seven seals, and then in the seventh seal, the world ends. There's lightnings and crashings, and everything comes to an end in a great conclusion with the Lamb at the center, and seven more angels come out with seven trumpets. And they begin to blow these trumpets, and the story happens all over again. As you go into the trumpets and then into the bowls of wrath, you also pick up a lot of Exodus imagery. The plagues of Egypt start to come back and become ways that John talks about what happens to mankind in the fall as we refuse to believe that God is in charge of it all, right? Um, not going to spend much time on those trumpets. They do begin in chapter 8 at verse 12. After that, or in the midst of that, there's a massive, massive section that kind of seems like an aside Right, So it's like he blew a trumpet and this happened. He blew a trumpet and this happened. He blew a trumpet and this happened. And then a lot of stuff happened. And then he blew another trumpet. There's this big aside there that runs all the way through chapter 12 and 13. And that's the other section I'm really hoping to talk about today in the late service where I do a little bit of a longer sermon. So if you've never found our sermons at sp815.org later in the week or looked for them. They're on YouTube as well. Just look for my name. If you've never found the sermons, but you're curious about, oh, the beast and the mark of the beast and the false prophet and all this kind of stuff, we're going to try to tackle that at the late service a little bit. But this is in the middle of the trumpet blowing description of the devil's attack on the church in history, in every time and place, which cannot succeed because Jesus is in charge and has you all the way through it. And after the world ends with trumpet blasts and lightnings and darkness and all this stuff at the end of the seventh trumpet, then another event happens and you have seven more things that happen, seven more angels. They come out from the holy temple, the hidden temple of God, bearing plagues, uh, bearing curses. And these curses then take the form of bowls of incense. Now, I don't know, I, you know what you think of when I say the word incense, if that has a reference point for you. You probably at least can figure out it's like perfume, right? It smells like something. Or maybe you think of the stuff you can buy in the, in the, the weird stores in the mall, the little sticks of scent that you burn and they turn into smoke and float around right? and leave ash everywhere. That, that's closer to the reality. Although uh, the incense of old was really more like little rocks. So if you ever get frankincense, you can hear the word incense in frankincense. If you ever get it, you ever buy it, it's little tiny rocks. It, it looks like amber. Yeah? And what you would do is you would have a, a, a pot, a sensor is what they would call this, a pot, and you'd get a burning coal going in the bottom of the pot. And then uh, this would usually have to do with worship in some way. So there'd be an altar or there'd be some sort of uh, worship event. And this would go for pagans and for Christians alike, actually. Um, but you would take some of this rock and you'd sprinkle it onto the bowl and with the, the coal on the inside and it'll burn and, and smoke goes up. Now, for us Christians, knowing that this was a very big part of the Old Testament temple worship, we should listen carefully to David when he says, let my prayer rise before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Incense is in Christian history because it is an image of prayer. And so just as there's this sweet smelling aroma burned on the fire, but going up to heaven for God to smell it, well, he isn't really smelling the incense, he's hearing our prayers. And so that you have this combination now of the bowls of incense prayer 
with great plagues of wrath that God cast down upon the earth, you have both the answer to our prayers and the last thing you would think we were praying for. That is, God is going to come out and answer our prayers for salvation, for him to cast down the wicked from their thrones, for him to protect us from evil men, and he's going to do it by causing all kinds of turmoil and chaos on the planet. The very things that in many ways we're praying against. Yeah? But this is where the same story matters. It's just one more version of the same story, which is that the evil one is going to attempt to destroy Jesus. He's not going to be able. Jesus is going to bring us through the fire. But we're going to go through the fire. And that's part of the key here in the book of Revelation. Don't let your eyes deceive you. You can't see everything that's really going on. You say, why, God, did you let this happen? He's like, oh, you have no idea how good this is for you. That's the message, though. That's what we want to take from the book, if nothing else. That we have no idea how good it is right now for us Christians. No matter how bad we think it is, it's even better and far beyond what we can imagine. So out come these bowls of wrath, these great plagues that are hurled upon the history of humanity that nonetheless are the answer to our prayers as we ask for justification in Jesus' name. And in this, they keep us in our own faith. That is, you can see this, when the cross is present in your life, when suffering comes to you, where does it drive you? It drives you back to Jesus. It drives you back to your God. How regularly do good things happen and you immediately begin praising God for it? It's not that often, right? I mean, sometimes if you're very, very blessed, your faith is at a point where as soon as good things happen, you say, hallelujah. But it's not very often. What tends to happen is that you go along, you're thinking it's pretty good. Okay, yeah, I'm doing good. Oh, I really did good there. Oh, this this is a pretty good week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then something bad happens. Oh, God, help me. That's more likely. That's more likely. And in fact, it's not just more likely. That's, that's the way it's built right now. Because we are fallen, because we are sinful and unclean, we do not natively turn to God in all things. And so he has cursed us in such a way so as not to destroy us, but to turn us. He could have just destroyed us. That would have been just. He could have just burned us all away. But he didn't do that. Instead, he gave us just enough pinprick to turn us back. Yeah, And again now, also holding ungodly men for the day of trial, so that they're never able to get the upper hand. A great example of this, not from Revelation directly, is the Tower of Babel. If you remember this story, all of mankind comes together. They're going to achieve great things. They're going to be better than they could ever possibly be. And God even agrees. He says they're going to be able to do whatever they want. So what does he do? He goes down and he confuses them. He splits them all up. Why? Just so they can't do what they want just so they have to be distracted and and kept in corners, just so they can't continue to get great at rebelling against him. And so God's curses continually keep us in check in order that he might save us through the midst of our bad ideas, right? And our mistakes and, of course, the wicked men who would do things against us. All right, so we're talking about the trumpets. uh, And uh, what I don't have in front of me and I should have prepared that for y'all, is where the seventh trumpet gets blown. I'm pretty confident it's before we get to our text, but I want you to find our text now that we heard read a little bit ago. So Revelation chapter 19 in your pew Bible, this will begin at page 1040. 
And we're going to be looking at verse 11. It's just a little way down the page. And I'm scanning back to find my last trumpet. It's, it's a while after the last trumpet. Or excuse me, after the last, uh, the last bull. Uh, but uh, without putting it all into its context, like I said before, uh, this section is going to pick up on a lot of the, the best imagery from the whole book and shove it together into one moment. So you're going to hear a reference to the beast, right? You're going to hear a reference to the fiery eyes. All of it's coming to a head. And who's the head? Uh, it, it's Jesus. But Jesus as they expected him in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The guy they thought was coming to rule? Well, well here he is. And Again, like I said a few moments ago, while this is not specifically about Palm Sunday, when you think of what he's doing on Palm Sunday, I want you to see that this is what's happening. Yeah, he's coming in on a donkey ready to die, but he's also coming in on a white horse with a sword in his mouth ready to bind Satan. He is doing that. And of course, then that is what he does not only then, but always. Always, whenever his words are proclaimed, the actual text of scripture opened up, read, and explained, he is coming on his white horse, his glorious power, as the king to his temple, which is you, your heart, to bind Satan and cast him down yet again. I meant to say this earlier, and it is kind of important. Again, if you want to understand why Revelation's got three end of the worlds, is because the entire image is meant to be understood as fractal. Fractal. F-A-R-C-T-A-L. Fractal. What does that mean? Fractal means a pattern that is forever expanding and repeating in perfect order. There are various plants and other kind of organisms in the world that do demonstrate this, where every piece of that plant, from the way it looks when it's big, to its cellular structure, is shaped the same way. And just kind of keeps doing the same thing, yeah? That is how the salvation of our God is working its way through history. It just keeps reflecting forward in a bigger and yet more diverse way. And that's where this is about the end of the world because the end of the world won't be so different from right now. It'll just be reflected forward. Hmm? So again, all of this imagery of Jesus is a reflection forward of the Old Testament completion of what he did at Holy Week, now becoming a, a grand narrative, a grand story for us to sink our hearts into and for us to trust. Right? So again, Jesus comes in on Passion Week. He's riding on the little donkey. That's the sign of his kingdom. But behind it, heaven is opened. And behold, a white horse and one sitting on it called Faithful and True. So he's going to be called the word of God in a moment too, right? But I mean, can you just can you just rejoice that your God's name is truth and his name is faithful. And think of faithful as loyalty again here, right? One who you can trust. That's his name. Jesus is not a trickster. One of the hardest things Lutherans have is they, they start to understand their sin they start to understand just how bad the flesh is. And then they start to question their salvation based on their knowledge of how bad their flesh is. And they start to wonder if they've believed enough to really have God love them. Huh? That's a trick. That's not Jesus. Jesus didn't save you so he could like see if you believe enough. Huh? 
Jesus saved you to make you believe. He is faithful. He is worth trusting. When you find yourself doubting, you're just tricking yourself. But he's not a trickster God. He is faithful and true. And in righteousness, that means accuracy. That means exactly what's supposed to be, okay? In righteousness, he judges. That means he measures. In righteousness, in accuracy, he judges, he measures, and makes war. Now, here's the thing that's really tough for us modern Christians to reckon with. Is war good or bad? Is there such a thing as a good war? Now, Paul says very clearly, join the beautiful war. Does he mean, you know, go take up arms and shoot a bunch of people? Not, not exactly. No, he means get in the war of the mind and the war of the spirit against your enemy, the devil, and use a sword far greater than any military sword has ever been. That is this word of God. Now, I don't want to go past the idea, though, that a just war is possible. If we as a little community were being raided by pillaging barbarians, who are stealing our crops and our women, it would be just to fight back. It would be good to fight back and beat them. So don't forget that your God is the God who in fact does send nations that are good to punish nations that are bad. And sometimes he sends nations that are bad to punish nations that are worse. And then as soon as that happens, he punishes the nation that punished the nation. In fact, that's more or less how it always is. Yeah. And in this, when we pray for salvation from the wicked, he does send wars. That is part of what he does. He lets the wicked destroy themselves. Now, when I say that, does that mean that I'm happy that there are refugees who starve and die in human history? No, not at all. But I don't think it's outside of God's control. More, I even think it's what he's doing. He's doing it so that they will repent and believe in him. Or if they will not repent, then they will just get what they deserve, which is to have hopelessness and war, which to me sounds far worse than just having war, honestly. So remember, who's the author of history? Who's the one moving kings and crowns to do what he wants? It's going to say in a moment he rules with a rod of iron. He makes war. We'll come back to it with rod of iron. But now, reference to chapter 1 where he sees Jesus by the seashore. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns. And on his, he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. Uh, this will kind of get down to the King of Kings, Lord of Lords thing. Uh, in Roman military dress, you would have your family name written on your chest, right? Because you were, you were a noble probably for riding on a horse. And so you have your family name written on your chest. The name written on Jesus, nobody knows. Can't read it. It's the eternal name of God. The thing that is written on your thigh, though, and you can't really see me here. If I'm on a horse, if you imagine my, my legs are up, right, horizontal, you have your rank written on your thigh. That's what Jesus has written on his thigh where it says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You're just riding around on his horse, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Um, so, but the name written on his chest, this is, this is his godness. This is his divinity. And the flame of fire in his eyes shows that too. His divinity, verse 13, but his cloth is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. This is his humanity. Right? This is what he's done for you. This is that he bears his scars. This is that he hasn't forgotten. You're of value to him now, far more value than sparrows. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. Again, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. This is both the angels and us. 
the fine linen, the white robes that the, the saints have been given early in the book. This shows this is us now, singing our songs to him, receiving his word, knowing who he is. The armies arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. There's the war again, the war you're actually supposed to be part of. The war of knowing what the Bible says, at least sufficiently, so no one can take it from you. Yeah? You don't have to be a master of every corner of the entire book, but you can be a master of this idea that the Bible is a sword for you to use to fight the good war against your enemy, the devil, who wants to deceive you and trick you out of the faith, basically to get you to stop trusting God's on your side. It's not about a bunch of theory. It's about you not trusting that God actually loves you. That's what he wants to convince you of, that you're not worthy of his love. But you have this sword now that he's using with his mouth for you to use in your mind and with your mouth to make war against that awful idea that he somehow wants you to figure it out, that it's all just a test, that you need to buy your way into his love. What a bunch of nonsense. He strikes down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Again, outside of Christ, that's not true what I just said. Outside of Christ, he in fact is destroying everything. He's casting it down. He's breaking every effort, even sometimes by letting people succeed just long enough that they hang themselves. Don't assume that because someone gets rich, it's all going well for them. Sometimes that's the worst thing that could happen. That's the worst thing that could happen to them. Uh, Ruling with a rod of iron, he is merciless outside of his mercy. In Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, in the promise that baptism into him is eternal life, in the promise that his flesh and blood are there to feed you with his faithfulness. Outside of that, there's no mercy. There's providence. I mean, he makes it the sunshine on everybody, but all it does is eventually give his skin cancer and kill you. And he just keeps, he keeps destroying it. And to see that, to rejoice in that, to not be turned off by that, that our God hates evil, that our planet's evil, and he's putting our planet in his place. And he saved us from it. He saved us from it. Yeah. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Again, there's his rank. Nobody outranks this guy. Now, look at that. We're at 30 minutes and I didn't even get through the text. And for the sake of our time today, we have a youth meeting after service. Uh, We're going to go ahead and stop here. But hopefully... I've given you a taste of, okay, here's this book. It's a big deal. There's a lot of stuff in it. But you don't really have to understand it to understand Christianity. It's it's just about what Christianity has always said. And it does it in a fractal circular loop built upon Old Testament images so you can get excited about it. So you can see the story as it really is, as opposed to how your flesh would understand it in history. And then at the heart of all of this is the fact that your king can't be stopped. Your God is actually God, and he's clothed himself in blood in order to keep you out of the the hands, the arms, the mouth, jaw of this devil and this beast who I'll try to get to in the next sermon a little bit. In the name of Jesus, amen.